faith in mountains, and that's certainly a progression from earlier this week uh, where you wrote to me that um, talking about <laughs> demons might be a bit of a humdinger, but uh, not at all. Faith in mountains sounds like a good topic this morning. Let's read Matthew 17, verse 14 to 23. I read from the NIV. Jesus heals a demon-possessed boy. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private and asked, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, Because you have so little faith. Truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, Move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. That's our reading. I don't have it with me, so you might have to read. Sorry. It's the best bit. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. Before I go on, uh, growth group leaders, there's a, there's a whole series of, uh, of psalms, uh, psalm booklets that uh, we printed out for uh, growth groups. So if you can come and see me after the service, that'd be great. I don't know if you have noticed, but... For a society that doesn't believe in the supernatural, there's an awful lot of the supernatural around. Uh, there's books about it, uh, the, the Twilight books. I don't know if anyone read those. I haven't read those, just in case you're worried. Uh, and I'm not planning on reading them either. Uh, but there's, there's, uh, there's lots of films and uh, television shows around it. There seems to be an inordinate number of vampire movies and TV shows on at the moment. Uh, I was reading this past week on the ABC website a story about the Tasmanian Ghost Hunting Society out at, um, out at Franklin House, of all places. It's hard to know sometimes, uh, isn't it, what to make of things like that and it's easy, I suppose, in one sense to ignore it. But what do we do when we find strange things in the Bible? What do we do when we look in the Bible and there's an account of a demon-possessed man being healed by Jesus? We can't just ignore it and go, oh, that doesn't happen, does it? What do we make of the Bible mentioning uh, demons and evil spirits? I've been reading two books uh, this past week. Uh, I've put references up to them on the website. One is called uh, Living with the Underworld by Peter Bolt, who's who's a lecturer from Moore College. It's a really interesting and helpful book I think uh, and a book which gets the focus right. Uh, So if you're interested in those kinds of things, that's a great book to read. Another book, it's also by Peter Bolt, 
uh, and co-written by another lady called Sharon Beekman called Silencing Satan, a Handbook of Biblical Demonology. But let me just read to you the, uh, a few words from the preface of that book. Few issues produce more confusion and diverse opinion in today's world than the matter of the devil and his demons. For atheists, many agnostics and many adherents to more liberal wings of various world religions, belief in the demonic is the vestige of a primitive, superstitious worldview that enlightened people have long since outgrown. For many Western evangelicals, that's us, it is something that was once real because the Bible describes it as such, but today we would do better to explain it as a psychological disorder or affliction of some kind. In many parts of the majority world, however, the powers of darkness are very real. As the Western world becomes increasingly post-Christian, manifestations of dark supernatural powers are on the rise closer to home as well. All it takes is to have one encounter with such manifestations or to have a trusted friend or relative describe such an encounter in the presence of equally trustworthy eyewitnesses and it becomes easy to recognise that the diabolical is real, very much present and exceedingly dangerous. Despite our firm belief in science, the belief in the spiritual and the demonic won't die not just in movies but in real life too. And as uh, the writer of that preface said, we can't ignore it. It's not declining, rather there seems to be a rising interest in it. Is that because people are becoming more gullible than they were before? I suspect not. I suspect it's because people are less afraid to talk about the things that they have experienced, the strange experiences that they've had. They're not afraid of being laughed out of the room like they might have been Uh, in uh, the West uh, 20 years ago. Uh, There's certainly a lot of misinformation and a lot of wrong thinking about things like this. Uh, I'm not denying that. Yet behind the mystery, behind the cloud of mystery, lies a grain of truth. Behind the uncertainty and all the speculation out in the world, there is a grain of truth and that's what the Bible is picking up on and clarifying. It shouldn't uh, surprise us when the Bible confirms uh, the existence of Satan and demons and unclean spirits. But what's surprising about the Bible, I think, is that it's so disinterested in them. It makes almost no effort to explain uh, how they work. It's more interested in the power of God. Peter Bolt makes a point uh, in his book Living in the Underworld that the great... uh, The great fear for us is not Satan and the demons. The great fear for us is the sinful underworld in our own hearts. As we come to this passage, I think it's helpful to remember that and to remember two other truths, that is, that demons exist and two, that Jesus is so powerful that those things shouldn't worry us in the slightest. Yet while those things are here in the background uh, and they're important things to think about, they're not really the main point of what uh, is going on here in the Gospel. Ultimately the point of this story is not about Jesus' extraordinary power over spiritual forces but the point of this story is the failure of the disciples, their inability uh, in regard to these spiritual forces and their failure to drive out this particular demon. Uh, If you still at your Bibles, uh, with you, turn back to Matthew chapter 10. 
In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had commissioned the the disciples specifically uh, for the task of, of healing the sick and driving out demons. So Matthew chapter 10 and verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Jesus had commanded the disciples to do that job of, of, uh, of driving out demons but for some reason they weren't able to do it in this case. Why was that? The desperate father gives up on the disciples and he goes straight to the source, he goes to Jesus. And where the disciples have failed, Jesus succeeds very easily. He says a word. He rebukes the demon and the demon leaves and the boy is healed. As I said before, this story isn't about Jesus' extraordinary power and stunning authority, but it's about the failure of the disciples. The disciples want to know, why couldn't they do it? Why were they unable? They expected to be able to do it. Jesus had given them the authority and the, and the job of doing it. But why couldn't they do it? Jesus says the answer is their small faith. The, uh, the, the, the faithlessness of the disciples exasperates Jesus. He says, O oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? If only they had faith as small as a seed of mustard, uh, Jesus says, they could say to the mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Apparently a mustard seed uh, was about the smallest thing that you could get, uh, the smallest thing going around. Uh, And a mountain clearly is about the biggest thing going around that you could come across. Uh, And Jesus is saying that a very small amount of faith can do incredible things. Please don't be discouraged uh, if you try and move a mountain. You know, you sort of go out of church today and you think to yourself, I might just uh, give moving a mountain a go. Wouldn't that be... uh, a bit of fun. Uh, Jesus isn't saying if you have enough uh, faith you'll actually be able to move a real mountain. It's a metaphor. Uh, It's a metaphor. It was a common expression at the time for doing something very difficult. Apparently there were some rabbis at that time and their powers of debate were likened to moving mountains. Uh, Not kind of the thing that you'd maybe expect if you, you know, a great power. My power of debate. Uh, <laughs> isn't that impressive? Uh, Jesus is, is saying uh, that you can do extraordinary things uh, with a little bit of faith. It's like me saying, I suppose, I have a mountain of paperwork to get through. If you thought that uh, I had an actual mountain in my house consisting of paper that I had to work through, I'd probably think you were mildly deranged, <laughs> something like that. No, it's an expression. Uh, and the people in Jesus' day would have known that. They wouldn't have gone, oh, I can move a mountain. They would have thought, oh, I can do really hard things with a tiny amount of faith. Uh, what Jesus is saying is that small degrees of faith can do great things. He isn't saying that you can become a nuclear physicist if that's what's on your heart to do. 
Uh, He's not saying that you can become a brain surgeon or an astronaut. He's not saying that you can do what Peter did and walk on water. He's not saying that you can become a professional miraculous healer or a professional exorcist or something like that. The authority that the disciples had to heal and to drive out demons was personally given them by Jesus Christ. Jesus hasn't given that personally to us but what Jesus is saying is that the tasks that he had given to the disciples they could do with a small amount of faith and Jesus is making the same point to us. With faith we can do the mountainous tasks that he has given us to do. With even the smallest amount of faith we can do the mountainous tasks that Jesus has given us to do. Has God made you a parent? then the smallest amount of faith can enable you to do that mountainous task. Maybe you've taken up Sunday school teaching for the first time this year. Maybe you're doing it for the 10th year or the 20th year. And Jesus is saying that the smallest amount of faith can enable you to do that mountainous task. God might have called you to live with uh, and to minister to an unbelieving husband or an unbelieving wife or an unbelieving mother or father or, or sister or brother. That's a mountainous task. But even the smallest amount of faith, Jesus says, is sufficient to enable you to do that task. God has called each one of us to be faithful to him, to love him with all our hearts and to flee from sin and to pursue righteousness. And Jesus says even the smallest amount of faith is enough to enable us to do that mountainous task. God has called us to serve each other in love. That sounds simple, doesn't it, when you read it on on a piece of paper, love one another, but actually it's a mountainous task. It's a huge task to love people. It's It's a terrifying task, isn't it, to love people, to actually love someone. But even the smallest amount of faith, Jesus says, even the tiniest amount of faith, is enough to enable us to do that mountainous task. God has called each one of us to evangelism, to to making the gospel evident in our words and in our actions. That often seems to us like climbing Mount Everest, doesn't it? But Jesus says that even the smallest amount of faith, even the tiniest amount of faith, is sufficient for us to do that mountainous task. No, with even the tiniest faith, the mountainous tasks that God has given to us are possible. But that reality, that statement by Jesus, I think raises two important questions that really are related. The first is, why is faith so powerful? Why is it that a tiny amount of faith can be so powerful? And the second question is, What was wrong with the disciples' faith? What was inadequate about their faith which made them so powerless? Jesus says that their faith is too small and yet doesn't he also say that if you have only the smallest amount of faith that you'll be able to do mountainous tasks? What's going on? The answer seems to be that the fault with the disciples' faith was not that it was small in quantity, but that it was poor in quality. It was a misdirected faith. In the same story in Mark's Gospel, uh, when the disciples ask, 
why they couldn't drive out the demon, Jesus answers a little differently. He says, this kind can only come out by prayer. It's not as though Jesus is giving two different answers. Actually, it's the same answer. It's the same answer in both cases. The disciples' fault was to think uh, that they could do the miracle on their own. Jesus had given them the authority to do it. So we can do it without Jesus' help. The fault of the unbelieving and perverse crowd was to think that all that they needed was the power of the disciples. They could just go to them. You didn't need to go to Jesus, just go to the disciples and get the job done. Maybe it would be a little bit cheaper, a better deal. But it didn't work. When they finally approach Jesus, Jesus does it straight away with a, with a simple rebuke. Even the smallest amount of faith in Jesus would have led them to pray and to trust rather than trusting in themselves and attempting the miracle themselves. Why is faith in Jesus so powerful? It's powerful because God is powerful. It's powerful because Jesus as the Son of God is powerful. One person wrote, What achieves results through prayer is not a superior quantity of faith, but the unlimited power of God on which faith, any faith, can draw. You see, faith is not like the little engine that could. It's not not about being the little engine that could that says to himself, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And, you know, it's that faith, that, that belief that gets you up the hill. If only it was strong enough. I remember when I was a child, I was about 10 years old, I remember praying for a new bicycle. And I remember thinking that the trick was that if I believed it strong enough, when I opened my eyes it would really be there. And so when I prayed and it didn't happen, I thought, oh, the great fault lies in my faith. It's it's inadequate faith. But that's wrong. That's not the kind of faith that Jesus is talking about. It's not about believing as hard as you can. That's the message of our society and that's the kind of faith that we're told about every day. Believe you can do it and it will happen. But that's a crippling message because it's not true. You and I aren't powerful. And the most dangerous thing to do is to forget that the great impossible power comes not from us, but from God. You might think to yourself, I can do this. But that's a recipe for disaster. Because you can't move mountains and you can't do the impossible. And in fact, without God, we can't even do the simple and the straightforward. On the other hand, you might think to yourself, I can't do that, that's too hard for me, I'm too weak. But God says, no, actually you can do that. With my help, if you ask me for for my help, you can. With me you can do the impossible. My power is made perfect in weakness. Why is even small faith so powerful? It's powerful because God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Think how what Jesus is saying would revolutionise the way that we think and act. You don't have to be a perfect evangelist 
or a perfect parent or a perfect Sunday school teacher because through prayer you have access to a powerful and loving God. Instead of saying, my growth group is a barren wasteland and I get nothing out of it, we'll pray, Lord, please use this people and this group to build up your church. Instead of saying, this church is so clicky and I don't have any friends, we'll pray, Father, please use me to love your church and to serve these people for Jesus' sake. Instead of saying, I'll never open my mouth to share the gospel with my friends because she'll never believe it. My friend will never believe it. Instead of saying that, we'll pray, Father, I'm afraid that the gospel seems so implausible, but I believe in your power. Instead of saying, I can't believe we're singing this song in church, what good would this song ever do to anyone? We'll say, Father, please use this song for your glory and for your church. Instead of saying, I won't bring anyone to church because they'd never be converted here. The service is too long or the service is too short or uh, the people don't look happy enough or the people look too happy or the people aren't friendly enough or the people are too friendly, too intrusive or the sermon didn't contain enough cultural references or the sermon contained too many cultural references and not enough references to the Bible. Instead of making those complaints and despairing that God could ever use our church to save anyone, we'll believe actually that God is powerful and that God can move mountains and we'll pray, Father, we're weak and useless people, but you're a powerful mountain-moving God. Please save people through us for your name's sake. Instead of saying, how ridiculous, we can never reach this community, we're too immature, too unskilled, uh, too, too loveless, ill-equipped. Instead of saying that, we'll pray, God, please use us in our current weak state to do great things for your kingdom. That doesn't mean that God will always do what we want or always do what we expect or always do what we ask. But that's okay because God's way smarter than we are and we can trust that whatever happens, it's better than what we thought would, should happen anyway. But if we don't trust God, this church will probably be dead in 10 years' time. Maybe 20 years, maybe, maybe 30 years, maybe we'll drag out a slow and painful death. But if we don't trust God, this church will never grow. It will never fulfil the Great Commission because the distrust of God is like a cancer which eats away at the heart and soul of a church. But God delights to be believed and to be trusted. You might feel like an abject failure. Welcome to the club. You might think that this church is an abject failure, full of sinful, apathetic, indolent, useless people. And you'd be right. And it's led by a sinful, apathetic, indolent and useless pastor. But I'm so encouraged that God is in the business of moving mountains. Isn't that great?
because even the smallest amount of faith can enable us, weak, useless people, to do amazing things for God's kingdom and for God's church. No, Jesus will build his church through us and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So even small faith in God can achieve the impossible because God is a God of the impossible. And yet this passage ends in a very strange place, doesn't it? Those verses uh, that I read uh, before verses 22 and 23 seem like a strange tack-on, don't they, to the whole passage. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus predicts his betrayal, his death and his resurrection. He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and on the third day he will be raised to life. It seems an odd place to finish uh, after doing a miracle, after driving out a demon to say, uh, well, I just, I just thought I'd throw in that I'm going to uh, be betrayed into the hands of men and, and crucified and rise three days later. Why is Jesus saying that? It's an important question, I think, because in Matthew, Mark and Luke, in all three Gospels, after healing the same demon-possessed boy, Jesus gives the same prediction about his death. Why in all three Gospels is it there in the same place? In Luke's Gospel, the connection's even clearer because it says there, while, he was, kind of while everyone was there being amazed by this miracle, he said, I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men and I'm going to be crucified and raised uh, to life again. Why is it there? Why, why finish with those sentiments? I suspect it's to remind us, lest we be carried away, that the biggest mountain in every life, the biggest mountain in all the world, is not sickness or disease or difficulties in life. The biggest mountain is not even demon possession. The biggest mountain that needs to be moved is the mountain of our sin which keeps us from God. The uh, Himalayas, the the chain of mountains in which Mount Everest sits, is one of the highest mountain ranges in the uh, whole world. Try to imagine a mountain range like that. Maybe in a mountain range even bigger than that, infinitely bigger. Our sin is like that mountain range and it stands between us and God. It separates us from God. Every wrong and callous word and thought that we've ever had, every injustice that we've perpetrated against the people that we love and the people in God's world, every act of violence against God's good creation, Every single sin that we've ever committed piled up like a vast mountain range separating us from God. We stand there on one side and on the other side is God and all his glory and all his wonder and all his uh, love. In his presence is a world without disease and death, a world without pain and injustice, a world captivated by love, love for God and love for each other, a world without sin. There we stand, kept from God by this huge mountain of sin. 
and no human effort can move it and no attempt to get around it will ever succeed. But Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, I can move mountains, not just little trifling mountains like demons and disease and sickness, but I can move the greatest mountain of all from which all those other little mountains come. Jesus says, I can move the mountain of your sin which separates you from God. I'll be betrayed into the hands of men, die a condemned man's death and be raised to life three days later. And what does it take for Jesus to move that mountain? Great faith? No, Jesus says, even faith the size of a grain of mustard is faith enough for that mountain to be moved. Faith enough to ask is all the faith that's needed. The good news about Jesus is not that with small faith we can accomplish great things for God, but by God's grace that's true. Rather, the greatest news in all the world is that even with the smallest faith in Jesus, he can move the mountain of our sin which separates us from the presence of God. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for the great power of Jesus which was on display in that miracle 2,000 years ago, delivering that young child from a life of oppression, bound up by Satan, enslaved by him. Lord, thank you that in that great miracle Jesus displayed his greater power to free us, all and every one of us, from slavery to sin, from slavery to our own evil hearts, from slavery to doing Satan's will, even when we don't know that that's what we're doing. Thank you that Jesus displayed his power to tear down the strongholds of Satan's kingdom and raise up his own kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God's love. Lord, thank you that Jesus, by being betrayed into the hands of men, by suffering at our own hands, by suffering the wrath of God on the cross, has torn down that great mountain which stands in between us and you so that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we can know you and come to you and love you and be loved by you. Lord, we pray that you would give us faith enough to believe that, faith enough to receive it, faith enough to come to you with empty hands and to say, Lord, please grant to me that great and precious gift through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And Father, thank you that from that great mountain-moving work of Jesus Christ flows the power to move all those smaller mountains in our life today. Lord, as a church, we feel that the task that you have given us to be faithful, to love you, to love your world, to share the gospel, we feel that those tasks are huge mountains that can never be scaled. But Lord, thank you that Jesus' work on the cross is so powerful and so comprehensive that those small mountains can be moved as well. Father, give us the faith to trust you. Father, give us the faith to seek you and to seek your power at work in our lives, not for our own namesake, but for the sake of your church and your kingdom and your name. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.